Okay. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up in verse number, I think I said verse 13. I'm going to read 13 through 21. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Now if you'd flip over to Genesis chapter 35, I'm going to read verses 16 through 19. Genesis 35, 16 through 19. Genesis 35, 16 through 19. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray Thee now that You would open up Your Word unto us, that we might see and behold Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I want to talk about Mother's Day this morning, but what, actually, what I want to talk about is Christ, <laughs> under the excuse of it is Mother's Day, and we want to lift up our mothers, and it's important, I think, to do so, because God has ordained that women do the things that they do, and men do the things that they do, and they are different. God has set aside roles for the men and roles for the women, and those roles should be honored because they glorify God when they are um, conducted in accordance to his instructions given us to us in the Bible. Um, being a mother is a very difficult thing. I think any mother would agree. In many ways, it's thankless um, for large portions of it, but there are times and occasions of joy which sometimes do not come until later in life. And our, um, our deacon read this morning from Hebrews chapter 1, verses, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it spoke about the joy that was set before our Lord, he despising the cross, uh, um, enduring the cross and despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. And so uh, 
mothers uh, pour their hearts into their children um, with the hope and the expectation that they will um, be joyful at some point, uh, if not right where they are, but certainly at some point later. And that's what it has taken in terms of us raising our own children. It's not until sometimes that they're older that the children appreciate the labors of the mother, they can appreciate the sacrifices that the mother has made, and then they can come back and, and share that uh, appreciation uh, with their mothers, which then will bring them great joy. And it is certainly the joy of every parent when they see their children grown and very productive um, in their lives. And so when we look at the scriptures, um, one of the things I want us to appreciate is because we typically look at the man as a type of Christ and the woman as a type of the church, and that is a very strong typology throughout the, uh, Scripture. Last week, Pastor Owen talked about Adam as a type of Christ, showing us very clearly how that is the case and how in particular it says in Romans chapter 4, I believe, that Adam was a figure of he that was to come, a figure, a type of Christ. And so that, that's a very, um, very common type for us to appreciate in Scripture. But we should also... Um, recognize and understand that some shadows are darker than others. There are some shadows are more easier to be discerned and see than others. But women can also represent Christ in scriptures also. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, it talks about how, and 27, about how God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So we should appreciate that not only is man in the image of God, but so is woman in the image of God. And so God has set before us in Genesis chapter 3 distinct roles, actually also in Genesis 2, distinct roles for men and distinct roles for women. Um, you have all no doubt heard of the book. I think it's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. I have never read it. But nevertheless, it, it um, I think, characterizes some of the differences between the way men think and the way women think. And I suppose it sets before us the... Um, the differences in a way that I don't think uh, are intended by God. Men and, and women think different because their roles are intended to be complementary. And so God has assigned different roles to each of them. The men are, should be preoccupied with work, and that is what God has told Adam to do, that he would take, um, by the sweat of his brow, would he take his food from the ground. And so the man is preoccupied with laboring, for the providence of his family. It is his job to go out and provide for the family. And oftentimes in our society today, as upside down as it is, it tries to foist that responsibility onto the women in addition to their roles as uh, child bearers. And so in Genesis 3.16, the Lord sets before us in terms of the women's role. He says unto the women, I will greatly multiply thy sour and thy conception. He's multiplying two things, sorrow and he's multiplying conception for the women. And sorrow shall thou bring forth children. And so we can appreciate with respect to the way women um, think and the way God has, uh, what God has placed on their heart, that of the two parents, of the father and the, and the mother, it is the woman who really pours her heart into her children. Um, we have certainly seen that in our lives and my family, that I am constantly preoccupied with earning a living or, or taking care of the family in a providential sense, whereas my wife is uh, particularly concerned about, even as adult children, she's concerned with how they're doing emotionally. She's concerned with uh, what things are going on in their life. When they're upset, she's upset, certainly more so than I am. But that's, that's what God has ordained for women. And so in our confusing world today, <clears throat> um, which is so 
out of whack with the Bible. I don't even know where to begin. There is so much confusion going on. What is really manifest is that we are living in Babylon, which, of course, you know, means confusion. And so that was set up in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. People are looking for a one-world government as though it's something new, something that will um, um, happen right before the coming of Christ. But of a truth, the one-world government was set up um, as soon as Satan uh, deceived Eve, and then things, uh, and then sin entered into the creation from there, and they were put outside of the garden. But in Genesis 10:10, 10, in particular, it talks about Babylon as being the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. Nimrod is an obvious type of Christ. It said that he was a mighty hunter. What do you suppose he's hunting if he's not hunting the souls of men as a type of Christ? So you have Babylon, Babylon set up. Uh, in Genesis 10 and chapter 11. So you really have a one-world government there. And the scripture tells us very clearly that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and he is the god of this world. So you are in either one of two camps. You are either in the kingdom of darkness, which is confusion, which is Babylon, which is run by Satan, which runs the world, or you are in the kingdom of light. You either serve Satan or you serve uh, God. So in Satan's kingdom, there's chaos and there's confusion and there is disorder. And Satan, as you know, is the power behind the beast, power behind the government. And the government, as you know from Revelation chapter 13, speaks great blasphemies against God and against his kingdom and against his, his saints. And they would do that because Satan is the power behind it and Satan is a liar because he abides not in the truth. That's John 8, 44. So we have lies coming from our government where it's okay to affirm somebody um, in their gender confusion, their gender dysphoria, where a man can say he's a woman even if he's not, or a woman can say she's a man even when she's not. And all of this, of course, comes from Satan with the intent of confusing uh, people to their own destruction, but it also confuses the gospel. It confuses the roles that God has set for men and for women, and it undermines, of course, um, the gospel that the Lord would preach through these wonderful types and shadows and allegories that are set before us. We have from our own government now lies coming directly from the press secretary of the United States, the mouthpiece of the executive branch of government. They are spewing lies. Again, indicative that this is the Babylonian uh, kingdom that runs the world. Uh, we now have a ministry of truth, uh, which... It just seems like something directly out of Orson Welles' 1984. But what it is we're seeing is there's always been a, a disinformation um, um, organization which comes from Satan. I mean, that's the way he's always been. He's always been spewing lies. He's always been op operating in opposition to, um, to God's word. Um, but what the government is doing now is they're circumventing the more surreptitious route of information, which was through social media, by which they would manipulate information and manipulate the search engine so that you would end up on a false platform than the seeking the truth that might have been something you were interested in doing. But with respect to this ministry of um, truth, um, which is just so out of, out, of, out of bounds. They're actually telling you now that it's, it's legal to do things that it is illegal to do. They have told us that, uh, you know, it's okay to go ahead and protest in front of the Supreme Court justices' houses. That's actually against the law. There's a federal law. Anybody that does that isn't guilty of a felony. But nevertheless, they spout these truths, these lies, as though they were truths. Um, what I want to share with us here is, of course, that way of thinking did not come from Orson Welles. It actually comes from God. It comes from the Bible. 
And so we're not living in an Orwellian time. We're living in a time spoken of Isaiah, who preceded George Orwell by 2,700 years, where he speaks about that in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. In Isaiah 5, 20 through 21, he says, Woe unto them that call evil good. That is what these people are doing. Woe unto them that call evil good. They are calling things that are evil, they're calling them good. It is good for a woman to have a choice. It is good for a woman to be able to abort a child. That is their language. Um, it's murdering a child. They are, and um, they call evil good and good evil. Things that um, are proper and just and good in God's eyes, for he has proclaimed things that are good. Only God knows what is good. They are calling those things evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And that aptly describes the people that are putting forth these lies. They are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sights. What they do not manifest is any of the wisdom and prudence of God. And so God declares woe unto them. They would suggest to us that men can be women and women can be men. In the military, I receive a, received a, um, oh, a f- newsletter that comes from the military where they are going to start referencing on people's medical records their gender of choice. So again, the government runs the military, and the military is uh, fomenting and encouraging these particular lies that people can choose what gender they are, as though the birthing doctor made some kind of a guess as to what the gender of the child they birthed was, that they, gave, that they delivered was. So in spite of the fact that men have um, you know, an X and a Y chromosome, uh, they can declare themselves to be women as though they had a double X chromosome. So the fact that you have 23 pairs of chromosomes and that there's true scientific basis in fact for um, the uh, determination of a person's gender, these people say, no, that is not true. Um, You can be what you think you are and what you want to be. And so certainly God is not the author of confusion, but Satan is. We Again, we have um, Satan interjecting confusion to overthrow basic, simple, biblical truths. Satan is endeavoring to confuse God's ordained creative order for men and for women in which the gospel is expressed. Now, I want to take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 through 15. 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15, because again, this speaks of the role for women in a way that might be a little bit enigmatic, but I'll pick it up in verse 12 of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 through 15. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to assert the authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. God is giving the order here in which he has created the man and the woman. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, notwithstanding, notwithstanding this birth order, notwithstanding who fell into the transgression, notwithstanding these other things, speaking of the woman, notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing. And then there's a conditional statement, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. All of those are synonyms for Christ. So if they continue in Christ, this will be the case. That should be obvious. And you will continue in that state because God will keep you in him. You, uh, Jude 1 1 and 1 Peter 1 5 talks about how we are kept by the power of God under the day of salvation. So the woman in the context here will remain 
will continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. But nevertheless, it says here that she will be saved in childbearing. So we can appreciate that though the man was created first, the woman will be saved in childbearing. Well, what does that mean? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8 and 12, before we ask some questions here. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 12. Again, it talks about this, um, the relationship between men and women. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8, it says, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. That's what woman means, from man. Adam was created first, and then God put him in a deep sleep, and then took out of his side a bone in which he made the woman. In verse 12, it says, For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. But all things are of God. So where does a man come from? Well, every man except Adam has a mother. And so we appreciate that without the woman, there would be no men around here. So how is a woman saved in childbearing? Why? Because Christ came from a woman. Man came by the woman. And so with respect to the parallel between Adam and Christ, we can appreciate that Adam was put in a deep sleep. In other words, it was a type of death, and out of his side came um, the woman. We see that with Christ on the cross. When he, when he died on the cross, out of his side came water and blood, giving birth to the church. Now, there's a parallel here in Genesis 35 that I had read, and then I wanted us to appreciate again how not only is the gospel taught in terms of what happened to Adam, a man, but also in what happened to a woman. Um, in uh, Genesis chapter 35, it's speaking about Rachel. Now, what do we know about Rachel? She was beloved. Scripture tells us that many times she was beloved. Indeed, Christ is the beloved son of the Father. And the first place the word love appears in the Bible is a father's son, a father's love for his son, indicative of God the Father's love for Christ God the Son. And it says, and they journeyed from Bethel. Well, Bethel means house of God. So where did Christ originally come from when he came to this earth? He came from a great distance, and he came from glory that he had in the Father, and he came to this earth. Um, so when they journeyed from Bethel, the house of God, where there was a little way, but a little way to come to Ephrath, which means fruitfulness, which means fruitfulness. And Rachel, her name means an, an A-U, an U, which is very much like Christ. Christ went like a lamb to the slaughter. So the Lord is setting up all these, all these interesting parallels here for us to appreciate about Rachel and how she typifies Christ in this context. And Rachel travailed, and she came to hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. Now, you remember when Christ was in the garden and he was praying that his father would strengthen him? An angel came unto him and strengthened him. And so here we have the midwife typifying that angel or typifying the Holy Ghost, assuring Rachel that she shall also have the son. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died. Did not Christ die on the cross when he was giving birth to the church? For, um, and it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name, the name of her child, Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow, but his father called him Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, 
again meaning fruitfulness, which is Bethlehem, which we know means house of bread, which also happens to be the birthplace of Christ. So we have a wonderful example here about how a woman giving birth to a, her child dies in that process, and the names of the places and the people help us to appreciate how she would um, represent Christ. Now, with that parallel in our mind here, in our hearts, we look back at Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam makes a very interesting statement about Eve, his wife. He says in verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now that's an interesting statement to make, particularly when he makes that statement right after verse 19, where God tells him that, Thou shalt return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So right after God makes the statement about he's going to the grave, he declares Eve uh, declares her name to be Eve because she is the mother of all living. Now, I think we can appreciate that when Adam made that statement that he had an understanding of what the gospel was, how all of these things were going to work out, how that the path to eternal life and eternal fellowship with God and eternal fellowship with his wife, how that was to be achieved, that by becoming one flesh with her, by becoming one flesh with his wife, which was in obedience to God, and we always find throughout the Bible the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God, how being in obedience to God, where in Genesis 24 it talks about a man leaving his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. How through that process and being fruitful and multiplying, which he could only do if he joined his wife, which it says God said to do in Genesis Chapter 1, verse 28, it said, after God created them male and female, it said he blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and to subdue it. So Adam, in obedience to what God had said in both of those places, by joining his wife, had an appreciation how that salvation would come through Eve. And the Lord says that, basically, when he says that her seed shall bruise the head of the serpent. And so, is, that, is Eve the mother of all living? Would that include Adam? Surely Adam understood how this was all going to play out, as I've just shared with you. As the mother of all living, that's a term that really applies uh, to Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, the scripture says, in him was life. In him was life. And so, um, Adam is using language that's evocative, of Christ. Christ says of himself in John 10, 28, he says, I give unto them eternal life, speaking of his sheep. So the language that is using, that is being used here is helping us to appreciate that Eve, as the mother of all living, that would include Adam as well, and who, of course, um, was created before she was. She certainly did not give birth to him, so you can't take a general view of that. This is speaking about anybody that happened to ever walk the face of the earth downstream of Eve is in view here, but it specifically says of all living. And what does it mean to be alive? It means to be in Christ or to have Christ in you because people that are not in Christ are said to be dead in sins and trespasses, but those that are in Christ are said to be alive. So to be the mother of all living is indicative that from the woman shall come um, the Christ. 
in Galatians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, it speaks about the Jerusalem which is above, which is the mother of us all. So again, there's a New Testament language speaking of um, similar to what Adam is saying here about uh, she being the mother of all living. In Galatians chapter 4, again, verse 26 and uh, 27, it helps us to appreciate that. Oh, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath more children than she which hath an husband. It's contrasting um, Sarah and um, who was the concubine of the name is Hagar. Thank you. Yeah, so it's contrasting Sarah and, and Hagar. And Sarah is uh, likened unto the Jerusalem above and said to be um, the mother of us all, as well as what we just read about Eve, um, having been declared to be such by her husband, Adam. Hebrews twelve twenty two. we don't need to turn there. We've looked at that many times, speaks about that, about the, heaven, um, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above, the Zion, that's uh, Mount Zion, that's from above, about what is there. It's the, um, the, the saints. It's Christ. So these things are allusions to who Christ is. So what did um, God do to Adam after he made that decorative statement about Eve being the mother of us all? It says the Lord did, the Lord God did make coats of skins and he clothed them. So Adam himself in type was clothed with the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness, all of which was possible through, through Eve from whom Christ would come. Now, helping us to appreciate the relationship between women and Christ himself. In Genesis 3.16, the Lord says to Eve that he would greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. She would give birth to many people, and those people that are in view here in terms of the spiritual meaning would be the church. Um, think about what the Lord said to Sarah, or what Lara de- Sarah declared after... Um, it was de- after it was found that she was with child and um, she gave birth to a child. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 7, Sarah makes an interesting statement. In verse 6, she says, And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh. He's brought her joy through the birth of the child, so that all that hear will laugh with me. In verse 7, she says, And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? Plural. Children suck, for I have borne him a son in his old age. There's allusion, an allusion here to many people coming through her seed, through Isaac. And, of course, what is in view there is the church. You would have thought she might have said, who would have said that, Sharon would have, uh, that Sarah would have given a child suck? But she says, no, she uses the term uh, children here. So we should appreciate this um, um, great conception that um, the Lord has made possible through Eve and also through um, Sarah, because what is ultimately in view is eternal life for the children of God um, through the seed of these women, through Christ himself. So multiplying uh, the sorrow and conception is speaking of the birth of the church, which would be through Christ. Um, It says, the Lord says to her, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And that, of course, represents Christ's heart in terms of what he suffered on behalf of his children as he was bringing forth the church. In Isaiah 53, 
verses 3 and 4, the Bible uses uh, the language that Christ being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I don't know any mother that's not um, has not had her heart sorrowing over her children and acquainted with grief when her, uh, when her children suffer. It says, Surely he hath borne our, borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And I have found that to be true with respect to my wife about how she'll take upon the griefs and the sorrow of our children and take those and own those to her own heart just as the Lord does with respect to his children, just like he does with respect to us. Lamentations 1.12, the Lord says, Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Christ is the epitome of, of all things in, in terms of that which is good uh, towards God, and he is the epitome of the woman who has taken upon herself all of the cares, the concerns, and the sorrows of her children. The Lord's suffering terribly because of his children, suffering because of our sin. And did the Lord greatly um, multiply his sorrows? Yes, he did, when he imputed all of our sins uh, to him. Now, when children seek comfort, to whom do they go? Who is it that a child generally runs to first? Do they run to the father or do they run to the mother? If a child is threatened, which of the two, the father or the mother, will zealously pursue the enemies of their child's, um, their enemies of their, of, their, of their children? My experience has been when my children have trouble with other children or people, I would rather go speak to the father than to speak to the mother. It often doesn't go well if I go and speak with the mother. I'm more likely to get a a different response, and I'll be careful with my language here, <laughs> a different response if I speak to the father than to the mother. And God uses that kind of language with respect to the zeal with which a mother protects her children. In the scriptures, uh, the language that would help us to appreciate a woman's zeal defending her children, and it's evocative of the ferocity with which Christ himself or God himself defends his children. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 8, he speaks of the zeal with which he will pursue um, the enemies of his children as like a bear robbed of her whelps. In Hosea 13, 8, he says, I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will render the call of their hearts, and there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. So you can appreciate the ferocity ferocity with which the Lord would pursue the enemies of his children. And he uses language that I think we can all appreciate. I know you know if you're out hiking and you see bear cubs, the first thing you're going to do is go the opposite way and get out of that area because you know behind those cubs is a mama bear that will zealously protect her her cubs. So when we get to Isaiah chapter 66, which our deacon read for us this morning, um, I would hope that we can appreciate the language in there speaks of as though God himself is a mother. He uses this wonderful language. He starts up in verse 5 um, about how people who have wronged his children uh, and cannot understand what he's saying. So he opens with, Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble. People that tremble at the word of God are Christians because they understand it is the word of God. He says, Your brethren that hated you, he's speaking about national Israel, how they rejected um, not only him, but they rejected Christians that came to them and tried to preach the gospel to them. And you see that in the book of Acts. And when they went all, and the apostle Paul went throughout the Mediterranean region, the Jews went after him. 
those of national Israel and persecuted him all across the Mediterranean. And he said that hated you and that cast you out for my name's sake. The Lord warns about that when he says, Behold, the day cometh when they will put you out of the synagogue and kill you, thinking that they are doing the will of God. So the Lord in Isaiah is speaking about that very same thing. He says, Let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. The Lord is speaking about national Israel being returned from the Babylonian captivity, which were not released by, with any great travail. They didn't find any wars to be released from the Babylonians. God simply moved the heart of Cyrus, and they were released. And so in a day, they were born as a nation again, coming out of there. Um, now, he says in verse 8, Who hath heard of such a thing? Because that is not how children are birthed. The Lord speaks about the birth pains of this whole creation, groaning and travailing, waiting for the uh, revelation of the saints. Uh, when you uh, gather fruit from your trees, you have to plant them, and there's a period of waiting before they will bear fruit. So he says, Who hath heard of such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Well, of course not. Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zyron travailed, she brought forth her children. Verse 9, shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? Well, of course not. The Lord is going to, as he becomes pregnant, if I can use that language, he's going to bring to fruition the child. The child will come forth. The nation will come forth from his bowels. He will give birth. It will not be aborted. It will not be a stillborn child. It will come forth. That's verse 9. Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith the Lord? Of course not. He's going to give birth to the church. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. So it's talking about the joy that's associated with giving birth to the church. Verse 11, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolation, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck, ye shall be born upon her sides, and be dangled upon her knees. All of this is evocative um, language, speaking of himself as though he were a, a woman. Verse 13, as one whom his mother comforteth, now here's the connection, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So just as a mother tenderly, compassionately, and lovingly um, holds her children near to her as she would nurse them to give them um, sustenance uh, without which a child cannot live, there is no better, better sustenance than what a child can receive from um, their mother. It contains natural immunities. It is what God has ordained for children. And where does a woman hold a child when she is doing that? Near her heart. Near her heart. So the child can hear the, the, the mother's beating heart and they are comforted um, by that as well. And the Lord helps us appreciate that with respect to the clothing that the priest wears. For on the breastplate, are, on the precious stones are engraved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, which the Lord places between his arms, on his breast, right over his heart. So the Lord helps us to appreciate um, 
how much he loves us and how much he cares for us and how much he welcomes us to his um, comforting arms and his comforting his embrace and his, um, the fact that he can nourish us and satisfy us uh, by these analogies that he has set forth with respect to the um, anatomical characteristics of the woman. Verse 13, as one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when ye see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the hand of the Lord shall be known towards his servant. And so we should appreciate that, that um, this is a place where we can rejoice as children, knowing that our God is taking care of us, doing everything that is required to um, keep us safe from the world, and to keep our, um, our affections on him. Because if he's holding us and we're receiving sustenance from him and we're held against his breast, you'll recall that the, gospel, the um, Apostle John, the beloved quote, rested on the breast of our Lord in his bosom. And the Lord says that of himself, that he was in the bosom of, with, with the Father. So again, there's this wonderful unity and embrasure between the church and Christ and his Father and um, something that we should appreciate with respect to um, women. And so we see here in Isaiah 66 that God uses language likening himself unto a mother giving birth, rejoicing, a mother nursing her children, which would be the saints, a mother comforting her children. And then it continues in verses 14 through 16, which are deacon read of a mother destroying the enemies, her enemies and the enemies of her children. So I want us to appreciate today on Mother's Day the wonderful role for women that God has ordained for women and that uh, no one should let the Babylonian system confuse the roles between men and women and to, even for a moment, denigrate the worth of women because, as the Scripture says, it was from the woman that Christ came. So, as Christians, we are to reject those lies And we are to rest in the truth and read our scriptures that we would be ever comforted and reassured about the way things um, are in the world and the way things are in Christ and he being our comforter. Amen.